What does it mean to be holy? God has chosen a people and is preparing a people to be just like himself. So it is written, be holy, for I am holy. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus to be upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say all that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, very, very simple. And I pray that this will be a life-changing word and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're dealing with uh, that part of Colossians that refers to the practical outcome. He has told us previously, Apostle Paul has, about the supremacy of Christ. And he's emphasized the gospel and showing the distinction between the gospel, uh, which gets us to heaven, and coming into our inheritance, which means that you fulfill what God wants you to do here below, and you get a reward in heaven. But the second half of this is practical. Now, here's what we've just seen from Colossians. The first, he tells us how not to be godly. That is, don't be a Pharisee. Because outward righteousness, living with do's and don'ts, here's what Paul says about it. It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what we know is that if we set our affections on things above, uh, not on things of the earth, this does make a difference in our lives and gives us power for holy living. So what we've seen up to now, how not to be godly. Now then, how to be holy. But today, we deal with the question, why be holy? And um, that's the question. And he comes right to the reason. He's not subtle. He doesn't mince any words. He doesn't wait around. He tells you why to be holy. Because of the wrath of God. Now, does that surprise you? 
You see, it's consistent. This is the reason we need the gospel. And now we find out it's the reason we need to be motivated to holiness. For example, the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. And then he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, meaning that the faith of Jesus must be ratified by our faith. And then Paul proceeds to show why be a Christian. Why do you think people should be Christians? Is it going to make them happy? Is it going to solve their marriage problems? No, that's not the reason. Paul tells us, because of the wrath of God, Romans 1 verse 18, two verses later, this is it, because of the wrath of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That means not go to hell, but have everlasting life. And so uh, the gospel is motivated for that reason. Uh, you will know the hymn, all of you. We won't, I won't uh, say that we sing it, but the words are, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But how many of you know the next verse? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. In other words, it was the fear of God. Uh, Martin Luther used to say, God uses sex to drive a man to marriage, ambition to drive a man to service, fear to drive a man to faith. And so it's the fear of God. Well, now when it comes to how to be holy, we're told to set your affections on things above. Why be holy? Well, he gives us the reason. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So, the reason is, you will forfeit your inheritance. Now, this is a point that I've made uh, consistently over the last seven years when I've had the privilege of being here. The distinction between the gospel that gets you to heaven and the inheritance to which we are called. Every Christian, that means you, you are called to come into your inheritance. Some do. Some don't. Those that do, come to see what God has in mind for them, and you have the satisfaction of knowing the will of God in your life. King David said, the, bounds of, uh, the boundaries have fallen to me in pleasant places. And every Christian should be able to see that. You walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with Him. Now, inheritance is to be understood externally and internally. External inheritance. Well, that's your calling. That's what you do. You're a nurse, doctor, secretary, attorney. That's external. But then there's the internal. And that has to do with how much of God you want. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. Setting your affections on things above. And that's the thing you should consider. By the way, don't ask what is my external inheritance that will take care of itself? Ask, am I following through with what God wants for me? Am I living a holy life? 
that brings honor and glory to him. All right. Because of the wrath of God, those who don't obey these words, you will forfeit your inheritance. And so we are told uh, to obtain inheritance, and he uses this expression, put to death what is earthly in you. What does he mean by that? Well, sex um, out of hand, holding a grudge, uh, not showing gratitude to God. This is earthly. Uh, the interesting thing is, uh, we have paradoxical language. He first said, we died, and then he turns around and says, put to death, sexual immorality. Well, when he says we died, that's what God did. And he says, this is the case with you. You are dead. Your life is hid with Christ and God. But why say then put to death this or that? Because we still have the same body. We still have the same thoughts. Becoming a Christian, uh, true, you now pass from death into life. True, you're going to go to heaven when you die. But the truth is, you also realize you are still the same person. And you're going to have temptations. Well, we died, and yet we're now commanded to put to death. It's the same teaching as Paul uh, did in Romans. So what is earthly is what we are by nature. It is what we were born with. And obviously, these things did not disappear just because you became a Christian. Otherwise, Paul would not say to us, put to death these things. Now, what does he mean, put to death? All right. It's an act of the will. It is something you do because you want to obey God. And so when it comes to sexual immorality, he says, have nothing to do with it. Stop it. Break it off. In fact, he is so strong on this that he said, otherwise, you're going to experience the wrath of God. This is why Jesus said, if your right hand offend you, cut it off. It's better to enter into life with one hand than to go into everlasting punishment with two hands. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better to go into life with one eye than to go into eternal punishment with two eyes. And so this is what it means by putting things to death. And uh, Paul now comes to these earthly things. He doesn't uh, beat around the bush. He comes right straight to it. He says, put away sexual immorality. Why would he put that first? Of all the things he could have mentioned, why put sexual immorality first? Why do you suppose this is? The answer is, it's what we all think about. When a person thinks of the Ten Commandments, you think of the seventh, you should not commit adultery. You think maybe of the sixth, you should not commit murder. Uh, but we all know about this. So he's just coming right to the point because he knows what you're thinking. You know, this was brought home to me years ago when Louise and I 
Years ago, we were in the old Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain fell. And uh, we were in the Leningrad Museum, famous museum, where they've got uh, Rembrandt paintings. And we were looking at one, it's the famous Rembrandt painting of Moses. And I said to the tour guide, uh, what do you know about Moses? Well, she said, nothing, actually. I said, uh, what do you know about the Bible? Nothing. What do you know about God? Nothing. We don't believe in God. And so as we would go from room to room, I would just say something to her. And she began to listen. And I said, you know, God sent his son into the world to die on a cross for our sins. And we transfer the trust we had in good works to the blood of Jesus. And, you know, she was listening. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. She's under conviction. I believe I'm going to lead this tour guide to the Lord. Imagine this in the Soviet Union. And I, I, I thought, this, it, it's going to happen. And I said to her, well, now, would you like to receive this gift? As she was tearful. And she said, not now. And it turned out the reason was she was living with her boyfriend and she didn't want to give that up. Now, here's the thing. I did not say a word about sex, immorality, fornication, boyfriend, anything like that. Not remotely. I didn't say a thing. There was a hint of that. It was what she was feeling. She had no background, no training, no knowledge of God, and yet just presenting the gospel made her realize that she was a sinner and what she was doing was wrong. You see, this is why in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that what may be known of God is clear in everybody's conscience. Everybody's conscience. And so as the Holy Spirit began to deal with her and I was presenting the gospel to her, that came out. I didn't make that happen. That was what the Holy Spirit was doing. I wonder if you know this. Do you know who Sir Julian Huxley was? Famous scientist who championed the theory of evolution. And he actually said this. If you want to know why the Brits quickly ran and embraced the theory of evolution, it's because of our sexual mores. Those are his words. Do you realize what he's saying? That Brits, he said, love to think that there is the theory of evolution. That means there's no God. And therefore, they can enjoy their sex without any qualms or worrying about it at all. And so they were thrilled at the thought because they could do what they want to do and never feel guilty about it. So, when Paul mentions what to do and to, how to be holy, he starts out, put to death what is earthly and the first thing he mentions is sexual immorality. By the way, the sex urge is natural. It was not born in Hollywood. This is the way God made us. But 
God set a certain definite and permanent perimeter, a boundary when it comes to enjoying sex, and was heterosexual and monogamous marriage. If you don't know what I mean, sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, as long as they're married, is legitimate. But that means heterosexual, opposite sex, monogamous, one partner for life. So, we're talking about what makes sin, sin. Any sin outside of marriage between a man and a woman that is done by any kind of adultery, fornication, so that sexual intercourse outside marriage is sin. Now, if you are a Christian and you indulge in sexual immorality, you're going to know this is wrong. And according to Paul, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I want to make it clear. This only applies to the Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can have sex, you can commit adultery, and feel nothing. You say, well, actually, R.T., uh, I am a Christian, and I do these things, and I'm quite all right about it. I'm going to talk to you about that. <laughs> now, first of all, Jesus kept the law for us, and we're saved by his life and death, so that not doing these things would show uh, our gratitude for this. Uh, but it doesn't mean by not doing sex, you're, you're going to go to heaven. Does it, he's not, we're not saying that. Colossians 3.5 refers to four things. First, sexual immorality. That's sex outside marriage. Second, impurity. That means sexual impurity. Third, passion. That means lust, means sexual lusting, uh, evil desire. In other words, you want to know what that is. That is when a person is attracted to someone, not their husband, not their wife, and becomes hell-bent on having that person. And you're lusting. And you say you can't do without that person. I can tell you, this is what Paul says will stir up God's wrath and his anger if you're saved. You see, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So if you're not one of his, you'll get away with it for now. This is why in Lamentations you have that verse, better that a living person is punished for his sins. Because if God is dealing with you now, that means you're not going to go to hell. But if you're not saved, you can do those things and feel nothing, and then at the end of your life will go to eternal punishment. And then Paul adds another word, covetousness. Now this is a reference to the tenth command. Most people never get that far. What does the tenth command say? You shall not covet, that means earnestly desire, and he adds your neighbor's wife. Now, covetousness, he calls it idolatry. 
idolatries, what militates against the pure worship of God. Now, Jesus took the 10th commandment about coveting and applied it to the 6th and 7th command. For example, whereas the 6th command says, you shall not commit murder, Jesus said, if you hold a grudge or will not forgive, that is murder. Well, no one had ever thought of anything like that before. Then Jesus went on to say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You think, my word, what else can we do? I mean, the Pharisees, they kept the law. I mean, so strong were they, they built fences around the law to make sure you didn't even get close to the law. They came up with rules that, you, that weren't even in the law because outwardly, they certainly were the cleanest people that ever lived. Outwardly. And then Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed that. Then he added another one. You've heard that it said that you should not commit adultery. But Jesus said, I say to you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Which brings us to the 10th command, you should not covet. You see, a Pharisee could be addicted to pornography and no one know about it. You see, pornography, where's the sin? You should not covet. You're lusting. I wonder, could it be there's someone here? You need this word. You're into pornography. And you don't think it bothers you. I can tell you, God is angry. And it's only a matter of time you'll get found out in some way. By the way, you might like to know, maybe you wouldn't like to know, but it's, it's, it's true, that pornography is the preacher's sin. It's true. It's the one thing they can do and no one know about it. Some years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention met in Los Angeles. 20,000 pastors descended on Los Angeles. And all the hotel managers and said, well... Uh, for this week, we won't, the hotel won't make any money on the pornography channel. You know what? After the week was over, they found out they made more money than ever. It's the 10th commandment that Paul said made me realize that I'm a sinner. He thought because he didn't commit murder physically or adultery physically, he was free from sin. And then he said that 10th command, you should not covet. He says, that got me. It made me realize what I was like. Why should we be holy? Like it or not, it's because of the wrath of God. You say, no, RT, I would just do it because I'm thankful. Well, good for you. And that's fine. But be careful, you're not being self-righteous. And you think you're a cut above other people. Of course, this is why we are holy. We're to say thank you to God. But Paul says it's the wrath of God. Michael Eaton put it like this. The Christian is subject to the wrath of God if sin is not cleansed from our lives. If a Christian does not cleanse his or her life from sin, 
the judgment of God will fall. You know what James said? Friendship with the world is enmity against God. Here's what he's saying. If you as a Christian, you have trusted the blood of Jesus, you're going to go to heaven and God is your friend because at the moment you come in, you're reconciled and the anger of God has been abated by the blood of Jesus. But if you look into the world, into devil's territory, you force God to treat you like an enemy. You don't want that. The worst thing you can feel is to have his anger. And you know, as I've anticipated this message, I have prayed for grace that I will not preach in such a way to make anybody feel guilty. I don't want to do that. And I hope that the tenderness of God will come through. He doesn't want this. But he's true to himself. And so, how does the wrath of God manifest itself? Well, first of all, he might just let you get caught with two or three people. And it's a little tap on the shoulder. Stop it. And maybe one or two friends find out and, and, and you're embarrassed and, and you take it from the Lord and you say, thank you, God has got my attention. And, but then there's a second level. And that is when you not only get caught, but you lose everything. Your job. Your marriage. Because God is angry. He does not want those who are his to behave in an unholy way. And so the wrath of God on you, this doesn't mean you lose salvation, but it does mean you will lose your reward in heaven. You see, here's the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, beginning uh, with uh, verse 11 and 12 and 13. He said, each one's work must become manifest, for the day will declare, this is the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work that each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's those who come into their inheritance. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved. So what is the difference? Those who have a reward are those who build on the foundation gold, silver, precious stones. What does that mean? Resisting temptation. Refusing any kind of sexual immorality, but also total forgiveness, loving your enemy, gold, silver, precious stones. But there are those who will build a superstructure of wood, hay, straw. What is that? Giving in to sexual temptation, holding a grudge, doing that which displeases God. And what happens on the day of judgment the works are burnt up. You will be saved. That's what Paul said. Listen, he said, if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. What's that? Reward. But he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Listen, Paul said we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
We. He's talking about the Christian. You will be there. I will be there. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to know on that day, you will find out whether I have been a fraud, whether I've been a phony, or whether I'm a real man of God. It'll all come out then. I will at the same time find out about you. All will be revealed and it won't be fun. It will be the scariest day of our lives. And so how is it that the manifestation of God's wrath comes? All right, first, first level, you get caught, but only a few know. And it's a wake-up call, and you thank God. Second level, you not only get caught, but you lose everything. Do you know, this is a sermon really that should be preaching to, to pastors. I have to tell you that in America... One a week is found out. A strategic pastor, high profile, and he loses everything. It's the wrath of God. You don't get away with it. You don't get away with it. And then there's the judgment seat of Christ, which I've just mentioned. And that is when it all will be revealed. But now here is a fourth principle. This is something that I have learned after 60 years of being in the ministry. It's one of the chief lessons. There may be some exceptions, but generally speaking, it is often true, the angrier God is, the longer he takes before he shows it. You see, when you do something that's not right, God doesn't lose his temper and Get at you? No. You think, well, how fun, how, how come I feel okay about it? Nothing happened. And you think, well, that means it's, it's okay. Let me tell you this. King David, he saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her. He said, I've got to have her. He was hell-bent on having Bathsheba. They committed adultery. Then he covered it up with murder. And then he said to himself after a few days, well, I, I thought God would have struck me dead by now or, or, or exposed me or I'd get in trouble. And he, he thinks, well, it looks like we got away with it. And then after a few weeks and a few months, he thought, well, I really did. I really did get away with it. And maybe you, you are having an affair. And you're doing fine. You say, I, I, God understands. He knows, he knows my condition. He knows what I'm like. I actually knew of a minister who said to me that he has have, he's having this affair. And he says, God has raised this woman up for me because I, I need this. Yeah. He's a pastor. See, it's interesting how when we want to do something, we make ourselves feel it's okay. And so King David, he goes on a whole year. Nothing. Well, whew, got away with it. Well, after all, I'm a man after God's own heart. And God loves me so much that he's just not going to let me get caught. But then, would you believe, do you realize that it was after two years? And then at David's door came a knock. It was Nathan the prophet 
who said, I know all you've done, and I've got some not very good news. What you did this in the open, you're going to be dealt with in the open. The sword will not leave your house. God was angry. The first thing were to happen that his son Amnon slept with his sister Tamar. And then Absalom was so angry with Amnon that he kills him. And now Amnon has to go into exile. And then finally, Am, uh, sorry, Absalom. And then Absalom is brought back home. And then he turns against his father, Absalom. And so the King David now has to go into exile for a while. David knew all this was God's judgment. He couldn't get away with it. Do you know why? Because he really was a man after God's own heart. And if God considers you his child and loves you, he does. You think, well, I've gone so far, I, don't, I think I'm okay. Listen to me. At a moment you least expect, God's going to step in. He's going to roll up his sleeves. And you will be so sorry. What David went through was so horrible. Don't let that happen to you. And I just have a word for somebody. You're in an affair right now. And you know what you've done is wrong. He said, well, I got away with it. No, you didn't. I would urge you on bended knee. Break it off. Stop it. And then get on your knees and say, thank you, God, for this wake-up call. And I just have a feeling, someone here, you need this. And this has come to you because God loves you. You see, those outside the family he doesn't bother with. Their day will coming. Their day will be coming. But because you're his own, he's given you this word. And maybe you've just been spared of all that could happen. We're not asking anybody to confess or come clean. That's between you and God. But I would urge you to take this word so seriously. You see, the New Testament doctrine of sanctification is the doctrine of gratitude. You see, if sanctification were a requirement for heaven, then salvation is by works after all. But why live a holy life? To show you are thankful. God loves gratitude. He hates ingratitude. And I'm telling you in these lines, this is the way to come into your inheritance. All Christians are called to come into their inheritance. And maybe you've been a little bit lazy or lax. And God has given you this wake-up call today. Find out what pleases the Lord. Walk worthy of Him. So, why be holy? Gratitude. Show it. Second, come into your inheritance and find out what God would do in your life. You've got years left to live, perhaps. We don't know when Jesus will come. But you've got a life out there. And God is trying to get your attention. And third, because of his wrath, listen to this. Psalm 76, verse 7. 
Who can stand before you, O Lord, when your anger is aroused? You don't want that. It's not fun. And God is no respecter of persons. It could actually happen to you. If you are truly saved, don't mess around. You're bought with a price. Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife. It was not easy. We're told he ran. I don't say it will be easy. But it's worth it all. Joseph couldn't have known that he had been earmarked to be prime minister of Egypt. And who knows what God has earmarked for you. And there's time ahead. You can do something about it. I think everybody here knows the chorus that I I meant to sing it last week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. I'm not going to sing it as a solo. I I don't think you deserve that much pleasure today. (laughs) Now, if it were Simon, you know, he's got a good voice. But I want all of you to sing it with me now, because all of you know it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace.